Good morning. Today's scripture reading is Genesis 25, starts in verse 7 and 8, then we skip down to verse 19 and read till the end of the chapter. I know it's uh, daylight saving time, so I know you're all tired, but try to keep up. It's not too hard. That's hard for me. All right. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Down to 19. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife, because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah his wife conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau, obviously. Uh, Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man, dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, Let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom, again, obviously. Jacob said, Sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I am about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, Swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went on his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Oh, I, I have one. But where do I put it? Right there's fine. All right. So, how is everybody? Are we good? I'm glad you're here because we have a track record of daylight saving shenanigans where I'm preached to a room of five people. I'm glad you guys are here. I, I think I think smartphones have changed the world. I really do, for the better. Do I have a phone? It's over there. Okay, I do have a phone. All right. Awesome. Um, So, uh, up front, I'll let you know, I did shave about 10 or 15 minutes off of this sermon. Don't worry. We will all have lunch at a decent time today. Unless something else pops in my head, and then I'm going for it. Um, So, why don't we pray, and uh, we'll talk about this passage. Father, we love you. We thank you for the, the, the thousands of blessings that you give us every single day on a daily basis, and we... Um, we are your servants, we are your children, we look up to you, Father, and we ask that you would um, once again give your blessings to us in the, uh, in the form of, of, uh, of knowledge, of, of uh, a connection with your word, of encouragement, of maybe some information that we needed to hear that we uh, haven't noticed before. Connect these ancient stories with our modern, fast-paced life in a way that, uh, that we need, a way that is necessary for our hearts. 
Thank you. Allow me to speak clearly, um, speak through me, allow my mind to be clear, and remember the things that I've studied, and bless us today. Thank you. In your name. Amen. All right, so um, I'm, gonna, I'm going to reread something he read here. I'm going to start, uh, verse 19 sort of starts our story. I skipped some stuff, some genealogies and stuff. I, I could preach on every genealogy that comes through, but honestly, what's the point? It gets a little weird. Um, and and there's, there's, they're, they're written for a reason, but I think I've pretty much covered all the reasons that they write genealogies. If, if you're not sure exactly why they write genealogies, go back to Genesis chapter 1 and start listening on the podcasts. Um, so I want to actually start right here this morning. Um, Genesis 25. Um, no, I don't want to start there. I'm going to start here. Um, I'm going to start in verse, verse, uh, verse 21. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer and Rebecca, and Rebecca his wife conceived. And the children struggled together within her. So there's this interesting way to start this passage. It starts sort of like his father Abraham. His wife is barren and, and they're asking, oh no, not again. And they're, you know, they're asking God, um, please don't let it be like it was before with my father. Don't let me wait till we're 90 years old to have children because then when they go off to college, we're going to be like 102. Um, that's the real thing parents think about them, just letting you know. Um, so it's an odd way to start a passage and um, it, it seemed, okay, so, so, so they both pray um, from the depths of their hearts. They cry out to God and say, please give us children. And she becomes pregnant and, and they're, they're really excited about this. And then um, some things get, get a little interesting because it, it seems that the baby is kicking a lot inside of her. Um, and it almost feels like there's two babies kicking inside of her. So she's like, want to feel my baby kick the other baby? Um, and so there's... There seems to be something going on, and she doesn't understand what's going on, and so she's asking God, what is happening? What, why is this so bizarre, what's going on inside of me? And it says, she went to inquire of the Lord. Now, the narrator actually uses some, some language that is actually out of time here. Uh, it's, it's chronologically, it doesn't seem accurate. It's almost like he makes a, a point, um, because... When this passage was actually, was actually written, probably a couple hundred years after these events, when they were settled in, um, in uh, you know, like we've talked about, in Babylonian captivity, and they're writing these things down for their children to carry on and to read, um, at this point, they had a temple. And if you wanted to hear from God up until that point, you could go to the temple, and, and you could meet with the priest, and you would offer some sacrifices, and you would tell him what's going on, and he would give you a message from God. Um, and so it seems, it uses the language here that she, it says she went to inquire of the Lord. And this is sort of how it, it, it appears that it, she's written it. How, however it works, um, she, the, the language says that, that, that basically she went to inquire, ask God, what is going on inside of me? And, and God tells her that there are two children inside of her, twins, and that they will fight one another. And he tells her something else. He tells her that one of them will be strong and the other will be weak. But then he says that the weak one will actually rise up and rule over the strong one. And it, this, of course, is backwards to ancient uh, families. Um, the older child would inherit everything. He would, be, he would inherit the family name, all of the family riches, and he would basically carry on the history of the family. You would look back and you'd see all the oldest children and... and and the younger children, you may, you may not remember them, who they were, what they did. But God tells her, no, the younger child that you have is going to rise up and actually rule over the older child. So, um, so what we're reading here is actually really important to understand. Um, ancient, ancient Jews believed that history has a meaning, that they could look back and they could look 
they, they can look back at the spiritual decisions made by their sort of ancestors and see how they got where they are now. They could look at their life and they could say, well, we are in captivity here. Um, we can see how we got here. We see that um, our rulers kept forsaking God and worshiping other idols. We can see that there was all kinds of idolatry in the land. We could see all kinds of sin. We could see taking pagan wives and syncretizing sort of our religion with other pagan religions, worshiping their idols. Um, we could see us not living by the law. We can see all of these things through our past that led us to where we are. And, and, and it went back really far to them. And it actually went all the way back to when certain people were born. And this is how they would tell their birth stories. They would tell their birth stories to sort of foreshadow what exactly was coming throughout history. And so they would, they would sort of reinterpret who this person was in light of what they knew about what happened because of them. I hope this is making sense to you. It's, it's kind of complicated, but it's how the ancient Jews sort of uh, worked. And so there's, there's all kinds of different ways that you can really teach a passage like this. Um, I, could, I could talk about um, what we can learn from the way the children behaved and the way one sold his birthright to the other. Uh, we could talk about um, not, you know, use some illustration of not forsaking your birthright in the world today. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to come at this from a totally different way. I'm going to come at this from the way that I believe the ancient Jews would have come at this. Um, I'm going to come at this from where we are, and I'm going to explain, I'm going to use this story to explain the situation that we are in. And to explain sort of why it was with Christ the way it was, why Jesus suffered the way he did, um, and, and maybe some things you've never seen before. So let's, let's now go to, go to uh, verse 24 through 26. Uh, it says this, And when her days to give birth were complete, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called him Esau. Afterwards, his brother came out his hand, with his hand holding Esau's heel, so uh, his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she, uh, when she bore them. So, um, there were twins in her womb, um, just like God had told her there would be. And it falls in line with everything God told her, that um, they would be the father of two boys that would actually form two separate nations. So let's talk about who these people were, because it's, it is kind of funny what, what he said. You know, he came out red and hairy, so they named him Esau, obviously. Well, to them, to the ancient Jews, it actually would be obvious. Um, Esau literally means hairy. That's what it means. Um, for some reason, I picture Elmo, red and hairy. It's, it's what I picture. Um, Esau means hairy. Um, now, sorry about that. Now, for the red part, uh, he came out red and hairy. So you could sort of, you'll, you'll sort of see what I'm talking about with interpreting what had happened up to where they were um, and sort of projecting it onto the birth story, okay? This is a really, actually, we, we look at ways of ancient writings and we say, well, they, they wouldn't do that because they were just keeping history. No, they were keeping history, but they were actually putting, painting it with theological meaning. Um, so it says it came out red and hairy. So Esau is his name, which means hairy. Um, and they said he was red. Red is actually an ancient, the ancient Hebrew word for Edom. And if you look into the descendants of Esau, you will find that he is actually the father of the Edomites. God told her, you will have two nations come from you both of your children, and their offspring will form two separate nations. Esau, whom they describe as red, became the father of the Edomites, of the red people, is what they're called. Um, basically, um, Esau was the father of the Edomites. So you can, so you can sort of see, um, and, 
And we'll get there, but if, if you know the history of the Edomites throughout Scripture and the way that they tormented and persecuted the, the Israelites, and if you know how incredibly strong that they were, this, this story is going to make a lot of sense to you because, um, oh, okay, we'll get there. I'm going to keep moving. So uh, Edom eventually became an incredibly powerful group of people, and everything from here on out that you read concerning Esau is held in connection with the Edomites. The way Esau lived, he described it the way they would describe how the, how the Edomites lived, the way that he acted, the way that he, um, his behavior, everything that he did. They, they, they tell the stories of him in light of what they know about Edom and the way the people were. This is, this is a very, very Jewish way of writing. Um, so the second child comes out holding on to Esau's heel. His name is Jacob. Jacob means that which holds, that which takes hold. Um, now, if, uh, if you know anything about Jacob, you know that, that his offspring become the Israelites. A very apt way to describe the Israelites were there to take hold of the kingdom, take hold of what God had for them. Even though they were weak, even though they were not nearly as strong or advanced as any other nation in the world, God had something for them. So this ancient story is told in the light of where they were when it was written down. Actually, it's told in light of what we know about Jesus, too, and we'll get there. Um, and so let's, let's go back to verse 27. <clears throat> when the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field. So you can see how they're describing the Edomites. They're very skillful Hunter, skillful in battle, very strong. Um, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Quiet, the same word used for quiet there is the Hebrew word for peaceful. Esau was very peaceful. They dwelled in tents. The word used for tents is actually the word for tabernacle. They were a peaceful people that dwelled in the tabernacle. Um, they were all about God. They weren't all about conquering the world and making enemies. They weren't about taking over other nations. They weren't about slaughtering massive groups of people like everyone else in existence at the time was, especially the Edomites. And so, this story is told in light of what they know about history, about the trajectory of history and where it is going. It's, it's incredibly beautiful, and it's historic all at the same time. It's, it's amazing. So when the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Um, so, it says Esau was a man of the world. He was powerful. He hunted all of it. It represents Edom in, 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 like to a T. The idea of building... The, uh, Edom eventually became sort of joined forces with Rome. Um, and, and we'll talk a little bit about this more as well. They joined forces with Rome and it even made them very, more, very much more powerful. And um, in the Jews' eyes, basically, the Edomites and Rome were one and the same. You couldn't separate them. Um, and so... The idea of being a skilled hunter is a very apt way to describe the way the Edomites were with other nations. And, and Jacob, it says, again, is dwelt in tents, they're peaceful. Um, and so from a Jewish standpoint, looking back on this story, you can see from the very beginning this theological meaning that's being written into it. And so with all of this in place, with an understanding of, of what they represent, these two people and their two nations, what they represent, um, the narrator tells a story. So we have two separate things here. We have the way that they are born describes... The Edomites and the Israelites. And so the narrator goes into great pains to describe, okay, it's the start of this nation. This is the start of this nation. Now that you know who I'm talking about, I'm going to tell a story of two nations. And he tells a tale from their life in a, in a theological way. It's, it's, it's brilliant. It's, uh, it's sort of mixed in with all kinds of metaphor and irony and, and a bit of prophecy. And so, so here we go. Let's read this. Um, once, so once upon a time, once when Jacob was cooking stew, 
Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew. Let me get some of that. That's what he says. For I am, ex- I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Uh, he comes in from the field. He's exhausted. Um, and this is, again, this is an amazing piece of literature. We have a story that, according to the Jews, it sets a precedent for the rest of history. This story right here is one way that they would explain the situation that they were in. Um, it's the start of a trajectory that would carry on for thousands of years. And so let's start with the activities of what they're doing in this story. Jacob was cooking stew. He's in a tent, the word for tabernacle, and he's creating food. He's creating sustenance for his family, for those around him. Um, Esau comes in from the field. He was out hunting. He comes back exhausted and hungry from hunting. And he thinks he's starving to death. And he says to his brother, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Um, And so... We have a bit of comedy about how Edom came up with their, with their name here. It says, therefore, his name was called Edom. Edom, Edom again, means red. Um, and so, not only, it's sort of, so what this is, is, you know, he was born red on the outside. And, and sort of, I, I guess, the idea that, that some scholars have written about is that um, what he was on the outside, he wanted on the inside. He wanted to be strong and powerful on the inside. So he comes in, give me some of that red stew. And there's, a, there's sort of a metaphor being painted here. Um, and so the question that you kind of should ask yourself when you read this passage, when you see what's taking place here, one of them's cooking, one of them's a skilled hunter comes in from the field hungry. So the question you need to ask yourself is this. If Esau, a skillful hunter, if he was a skillful hunter, why was he starving when he came in from the field? He was a skillful hunter. He was hunting. Skillful hunters usually catch something and eat it. And he's starving. He says he's exhausted from hunting. He says he's about to die because he cannot get food to feed him. So apparently his abilities aren't enough to provide for him. Apparently his power and his abilities as a human being to do really good things aren't enough to provide what he needs. You can kind of see where this is going. It's very theological. Um, and why did he have to have to beg a tent dweller, one who dwells in sort of tabernacles? Why did he have to go into the tabernacles and, and ask someone there to provide sustenance for him? So there's obviously an ancient theological idea going on here. Over the next couple of centuries, um, the Edomites, the descendants of Esau, would become huge and really powerful. So down here we see... Edom, Eduma. This is, um, it, it, it carries on for a very, very, very long ways. I just wanted to show you this before I show you this. Um, these are the 12 tribes of Israel and where they were. Edom was massive and it eventually worked its way in um, a long ways into sort of the land of Canaan and persecuted them for a very long time. And so over the next couple centuries, this would sort of take place up until the point where the Edomites would actually storm in and destroy. They were, they were there, as scriptures say, uh, when, when Solomon's temple was being dismantled and being destroyed. They were there taking part in that and burning it down and dismantling it brick by brick. So what the narrator here is saying is, this is not just a story about Esau, it's a story about Edom. No matter how strong and skilled they become, no matter how powerful they become, Jacob, Israel, has something that can sustain them in a way that they cannot sustain themselves. Israel has something to offer the most powerful nations in the world. And what is it? 
And so the, this is a message that the audience in the time of this book being written needed to hear. Again, they were in Babylonian captivity. They were surrounded by the most powerful people in existence um, being basically held under thumb and, and, and forced to live in a way that was not a way that, that they felt was godly, that they were ever allowed to live under their worship of God. And so shortly after Israel was conquered, the Assyrians made Edom what's called a vassal state, and, and meaning basically they had joined hands for mutual cause, basically, which was to overthrow and take over Israel. And so you see why a story like this would be told the way it is, because certain things are emphasized. We are weak. We are poor. We don't have earthly might. We are not skillful war makers. We are not particularly strong. We're not particularly strong politically or monetarily. We have really nothing, nothing of the world that they have. We dwell in tents. We worship God in the tabernacle. But the scriptures tell us that what is actually going on here is the same thing that was going on with our forefathers, Jacob and Esau. That one day we will rise in a way that they cannot comprehend, in a way that they could not do for themselves, and we will provide something for them that will change and shift the balance of power. Okay, so this is, it's a fascinating way to describe this. So the original audience, upon hearing this story, would have heard this. Edom is strong and skillful and incredibly powerful and poised to take over the rule of the entire world, but Israel, who dwells in the tabernacle of the Lord is offering fulfillment that Edom cannot offer. And what you can find in the tabernacles of God cannot be attained by might, by strength, by skill, or by conquering. And so the question is, how do you get it? Let's start reading in verse 31. Jacob said, tell me your birthright now. Esau said, I am about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? And Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob, and Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew. And he ate and drank and rose and went on his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. So Jacob says, basically, you want what I have to offer? You have to give up control. You have to give up earthly control. If you want to live, if you want the food that is here in this tent of Israel, you have to give up your power, your earthly might. And this is what you have to do. So he admits that there's sort of a struggle for control, for the keys to the kingdom. And Esau replies, I'm about to die. What use is a birthright to me? So it's a subtle jab by the narrator that, that when you're on your deathbed, no matter how mighty you have been your whole life, when you're on your deathbed, what good is your might? What good is all of your skill? Your accomplishments, your power, your prestige, all of your talents, when none of that can save you, what use is an inheritance? What use is all of our earthly might when it really comes down to it? When it comes to your deathbed, none of that means anything. Because the bottom's still going to fall out. And what you will find below, nothing you have, not your degree, not your trophy wife, not your 20 kids, not your massive mansion, not your accomplishments, not your career, none of that will matter in the end. And so this is a very subtle jab that the narrator is offering here. It's, it's brilliant. Um, so he swore, he swore to him and he said, uh, and basically he sells his birthright to Jacob and, and Jacob gives him, it's funny, he didn't just give him stew, which it's interesting, lentil stew is not red. 
You know that, right? Lentil stew is not red. Um, and on top of that, he gives him something else. He gives him bread. It says he gives him bread and lentil stew. Again, this is very theological. Um, and maybe you see it, maybe you don't. But um, it's, it's a picture of sort of the Passover, the bread and the wine. And, and when you come in from the field and all of your skills and all of your power have not fulfilled you and you are exhausted and you are tired and you are hungry and you feel like you are about to die and you're not prepared and you don't want to, you come into the temple of God and what are you offered? Bread and wine. Why? I don't necessarily think they knew why they were celebrating the Passover the way that they were. I don't think maybe that they fully understood the symbolism of the broken bread and the spilt blood. It's a picture of Jesus and how he conquered the world. Not through might, but simply through submitting, through service, through love, and through suffering and dying on a cross. So the main message written into this text is really quite beautiful, and it says this. The Edomites are strong again and mighty, but it cannot save them, and they must enter into the tent, the tabernacle, and eat of the bread and drink of the wine and give up their earthly desire for kingdom and for riches, and they will find life. See, what this is, is a, it's, it's, it's a pre-Jesus salvation message to the world from the Israelites. And these are buried all through scriptures, and, and we rarely see, I mean, Cain and Abel. It's obvious once you get a good look at it, once you kind of look at it from the gospel side. And um, Adam and Eve, you know, oh, they can't cover themselves, and so God takes an animal and slays it and covers them because... Their own coverings made of their own hands wouldn't work. There's just so much there. All through the scriptures, we see Jesus, 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 Jesus. And then right again, right here, one of the most obvious pictures of, of the mission of Jesus and how exactly it is accomplished. And it's, it's all there. And we rarely notice it. The story, this story would eventually keep moving throughout time. And, and, and Esau would, again, be the father of the Edomites, and Jacob would be the father of the Israelites, and they would grow into massive sort of tribes and nations, and they would be warring against each other. Um, and the Edomites would always be a little stronger. And hundreds of years later, this story would actually play itself out again. Um, there was an Edomite uh, in, the, in the first century whose name was Herod. He was an incredibly powerful ruler who had joined forces with the Roman army. Um, Donatello actually painted um, one of the events. We, we read about two things that Herod did in the New Testament. One of them was he was the one that killed John the Baptist. He, this is sort of the, 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 the dancing daughter. And then you have um, John the Baptist's head being delivered to him on the silver platter. Um, this is a perfect picture of the relationship sort of that the New Testament describes between Israel and Edom. And so it's not only this, there was, there's another story. This one's in the book of Mark. There's another one in the book of Matthew. And Matthew is the only one that tells a particular story that happened um, with Herod. We assume that this Herod was, was probably um, the son of the Herod written about in Matthew because it would have been much later. Um, but it's, it's possible that he was still around. Um, but Matthew writes a story about, about Herod that's not captured anywhere else, and there's a reason. If you've, if you've ever looked into why certain Gospels tell different stories, um, um, the virgin birth isn't, married, is, isn't, isn't, um, isn't written in all of the Gospels, and, 
and certain casting outs of demons of certain things aren't, aren't captured in all of the Gospels, and they all tell sort of different stories because they're all written to different people. They're all written to, diff- written to different people groups. Matthew, the book of Matthew, was actually written to the Jews. There's certain things that the Jews would only listen to if it came from another Jew. Matthew was Jewish. And so Matthew writes to them a story that lines up perfectly with Jacob and Esau, a story they would have been very familiar with, the story that they loved. And it starts in uh, chapter 2, and it goes like this. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all of Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Now, um, I'm going to skip down to verse, uh, verse 7 because there's a lot of stuff in the middle that uh, I just kind of want to hit the main points here. Um, then Herod summoned uh, the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. I'm going to skip down to verse 12. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So basically, they said they're going to come back and tell him where the baby is. And they tricked him, and they didn't go back that way. And so, skip to verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all male children in Bethlehem, in all that region, who were two years old or under according to that time that he ascertained from the wise men. So, what we have here is a really good parallel. Jesus, of course, was a descendant of Jacob. Herod, a descendant of Esau. He was um, Edomian, which later, that's what they called the Edomites later on. Um, so if you see what's happening here, the descendant of Esau, Herod, the great, skilled, powerful, he's set to rule the world. And he's tricked out of his rule by the descendants of Jacob. Later we find that Jacob pulls another trick on his brother Esau and actually gets the birthright from his father. Um, we'll read about that in a few weeks. He basically covers his, his arms with hair to make himself look like his brother Elmo. And, <laughs> and his, his father's blind and his father touches him and says, Ah, my son, yes, here's the blessing. And so he's kind of a trickster. And so this is a great parallel of exactly what was going on. Um, So this is why Matthew puts things in this way. He wanted to emphasize to the Jews that Jesus is the rightful ruler of the kingdoms of the earth. That Jesus is the one, is the symbol of Jacob. He is the one who would rise up over his brother Esau, who was much more powerful. And he wouldn't do it through might. He would do it through service, through giving, through meeting people's needs. Do you see it? It's brilliant. Um, He didn't come by might or by power, but he came by something different. He came by a spirit of love and gentleness and suffering. He offers up bread and wine, his own flesh and blood. And if you give up your earthly kingdoms, you're striving for riches and power through your own might and skill, and you receive what Jesus is offering, he says, you will live. See, the story of Jacob and Esau is actually about Jesus and you. By nature of it, we are not, from what I can tell, it would take a lot of research, but I'm pretty sure most of us are not descendants of Israel. We would basically be considered, at this point, descendants of Esau. 
And so this is a gospel message to you from the ancient Jews, long before Jesus. Esau, with all of his might and power and skill and ability, could not save himself. He could not save himself. There was something else that he needed to truly be filled and to truly live. And there's something else here. It's it's very subversive. It's a way of living that's not about strength. It's about humility. And this is something Christians oftentimes don't grasp. Jacob represents... Jacob represents sort of the pastoral power that Christians have, that all Christians hold, that oftentimes it seems to to the world, it seems unimportant, it seems laughable. Our little spiritual power that we have to say spiritual things to each other and feed each other on the inside and not just stoke each other's egos and compliment the outside or build up the outside. We have something different. There's something else, and it's very subversive. They think that they live in the real world, that they are in charge of it. They are very strong, they are very powerful, and they feel that they are in charge of the world. But we, the followers of Jesus, live in a world that is much, much smaller, but it's much more real. It's much more real than actually we will ever know. It's a world that we have found out belongs to God, a world that has been invaded by God's grace. We know things about the world that they don't, that there is actually a bit of an invasion taking place of God's people. Esau wasn't taking the world seriously enough. He gave up his birthright. He, he knew he had power. And in the end, after having all this power and ability, it, it wasn't really worth it much to him. And he, he looked down on his brother. And he wasn't taking his brother's abilities very seriously. Worshiping God in the tabernacles is not marginal to making money. Worshiping God, what we do here in this room, this is not less important than your careers. This is not less important than your money. This is not less important than your mortgages. This is probably paramount to all of it, centering ourselves on Jesus and understanding his message to the world. We, we tend to dumb it down and say, yeah, I also, yeah, I'm spiritual too. Also, on top of everything, I also go to church and I, I serve and I, I worship and I, I, I read the Bible, but... Um, we don't oftentimes give that the weight that it deserves. Prayer and communion are not, are not less important than, than, than building something impressive. We are subversive people, and the, and the success of our mission actually depends on the world not realizing exactly who we really are. And you see, followers of Jesus actually believe, and you may not realize this, followers of Jesus who understand the gospel message really do actually understand that the American way of life really is doomed to destruction. It really is. And that in these rooms, these spaces, these church buildings where churches gather together, Christians gather together, another kingdom is actually being prepared to take the place of these kingdoms when they fall. We believe that one day the nations of this world, all of them, the Russian, the Chinese, American, Korean, Peruvian, all of them, Brazilian, just any country, that exists, will one day be different. We don't believe that they are suited to sustain this world. We don't believe that they can provide really what people need. Um, We believe only the things of Jesus, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control, gentleness. These are the things that really can sustain people and sustain life and sustain the world. 
And so this is what we take hold of and this is what we exercise. So many of us have come to this point in our lives. We've come to the place where we've decided, even with all of the things that we've done, our accomplishments that we've been able to build, and we look back on our lives, and, and maybe we're happy with what we've accomplished, but we still feel exhausted and hungry and unfulfilled, like there has to be something more. How many people get super, super, super rich and super famous only to end everything? Or just to throw it all away? Because there's something else that Esau found cannot sustain and cannot fulfill. And so what we do is when we get to this point, we rush into the tabernacle and, and, and we say, look, I will trade the world. I will trade everything I have for what you have. Just give it to me. Because at this point, it doesn't mean anything. And we give, we give up our identity and our human accomplishments and we give them to Jesus. And, and, and we are filled by what the descendant of Jacob has offered us. And at the end of the passage... It actually says something interesting. It says, and Esau hated his birthright. I kind of understand what he's talking about. I, I have come to hate what the philosophies of the world with their might and their power and the violence that they do to people. I've come to hate that. I've come to hate what humans do with earthly power, with our skill at hunting, with our, all of it. And that's a metaphor for Whatever all kinds of things that we do to cause human suffering. I hate it. I hate the birthright that we received from Esau. And I want to give it up. And stop causing broken families and hurt children and violence and ignorance of the misery of those around us. I I hate it. We need Jesus. They need Jesus. And I want to be freed from it. I want to resist it. And maybe you do as well. And so the only thing to take from this passage is that hold your abilities lightly. Hold your status, your career, this little empire that you've built. Hold it lightly. It's not as important as other things. It's really not. As the things that Jesus gave, as the things that Jesus is still offering us today. It is more important to love people than to give them money or to make money off of them. It is more important to love them. And so, maybe this means something for you. Maybe there's something in this story that you haven't seen before, and I hope there is. And uh, maybe this is you. Maybe you feel unfulfilled, and maybe this is your first time coming in here today. And you came in here because maybe you've accomplished something, and here you are sitting here listening to me speak, and you, you feel exhausted and you're hungry, and you're willing to give up everything for some fulfillment and some purpose in your life, I'm glad you're here. Take communion with us. Become a follower of Jesus. That's what we're going to do right now. We're going to take communion. Our communion servers can go ahead and uh, start preparing for it. This is something we do every single week. It's one of the most important parts of our, uh, of our Sunday gathering. It's the thing that reminds us of what Jesus did for us on the cross. We take a piece of bread represents the broken body of Christ. We take a glass of wine. It symbolizes the spilt blood of Christ. And we take the bread and we dip it in the blood and we eat it. And we take it down inside of us and and, and we sort of ask God, you know, this is a metaphor. Nothing mystical happens. It's just bread. It's just wine. But it's symbolic and it's metaphoric. and, And we 
through doing this, we're asking God to take the gospel down deeper inside of us and let it, let it touch the places that it hasn't touched before. This is the last thing that Jesus did with his followers before he was drug off and crucified and tortured for you to reconcile you with God. There is hope, there is reconciliation, there is forgiveness no matter what you've done, no matter what you've brought here, there is freedom from it. And I hope that you can see that we're all in the same boat. We're not a room full of really holy people. We're not a showroom for saints. We are a hospital for sinners. And I hope that um, you can recognize that and maybe agree with us that our God is the one who is great and worship him. So if you're a follower of Christ, I would ask that you come take communion with us. If you would like to become a follower of Christ, please come and take communion with us. If you're not, I would ask that you not take communion with us because you don't fully understand what it is. I would love to talk to you about it. I'll be around afterwards. If you need prayer, right through these doors on the left, there's a prayer room. We'll have uh, some elders or some house church leaders in there to, to pray and talk with you. So let's pray. Father, we love you, God. I ask that you would uh, convict us Help us to understand who you are in light of what we've read this morning. I ask that you would shine a light onto our life and uh, let us see the things that we've been choosing to ignore or that we've hidden in darkness and help us to kind of drag them out into that light and, and say, I want to get rid of this. It's weighing me down. It's exhausting me. The pursuit of this is not fulfilling and I'm doing it for idolatrous reasons so that people will look at me and be impressed and worship me instead of looking at you. Change our hearts. Fashion us in your image. Mold us like clay. Thank you for your sacrifice. Help us to learn to take that sacrifice into the streets and, and offer love and grace and mercy to those around us. Thank you, God. In your name, amen.